loved it. I'll send you a copy. Bam! Bitch went down. Welcome back to Horror Queers. We are talking international. We are talking people eating puke. And we're talking about piano wire. I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And I think we're also going to be talking about names that you cannot pronounce. You know what? I just fucking realized as I was prepping for this. I was, <laughs> God damn it. I'm going to have to read these names out loud. And I am fucked. Listeners, please revisit our Fatal Frame episode for a sneak preview of the clusterfuckery I'm about to get myself into. They're both Japanese movies. Um, what's it's so like? Did you what foreign language did you take in high school? Okay, so you're not compulsorily required to take a foreign language, but the majority of people will obviously take French because oh, it sense. is Canada's second. Well, no, it's. It is a national language in Canada. Well, in the South and Texas, I mean, like, people take a lot of stuff, but Spanish is typically the one that people take. And people always have trouble pronouncing it. And I'm like, you literally just sound out every vowel. It's Spanish is actually easier than English because the vowels have um, only one sound. There's no, like, soft or hard, like, vowel sound. Oh, so, I see. So it's like you're reading it phonetically. Um, right. That's kind of how I treat Japanese. Okay. Well, what, I mean, we don't have a Jenny Nelf to help us yeah. this time, so we're going to phonetically sand our way through this together. We are. And, that, oh, sorry. We're talking about audition or audition. No, don't do that. No. No? <laughs> oh, oh, right, right. Sorry. I just, we I talked just, about this last time. I just, too. no, I, I wasn't trying to, like, co-op the accent. I was just trying, well, I don't know. Well, no, because, like, if people say, like, um, uh, Barcelona. Uh, that's not really, I mean, it's super fucking pretentious, but it's not, like, cultural appropriation, I don't think. I don't know. Okay. You are threading a thin I, line here, I'm, my I'm, friend. I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump off of this hill. Okay. So. Just don't die on it. <laughs> um, but yes, and we are going to be spoiling this movie from beginning to end. Yes, this 20-year-old movie, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary, but we are spoiling the fuck out of it, as always. Yeah, um, 20th anniversary... Well, okay, so Ish. here's one of those weird things. It premiered at the Vancouver Fan uh, International Film Festival on October 2nd, 1999. That was the first screening it ever had. It got an official release in Japan March 3rd of 2000, and then a release in the States in August on August 8th, 2001. So oh, okay. it is 20 years on October 2nd, but I think when we were, when we scheduled this, we looked at the U.S. release date of August 8th, <laughs> which is not the first time this has happened to us. Uh, see previous episode, Calvair. There you go, Calvair. Um, but yeah, and it was distributed in the U.S. by Vitagraph, and it has a runtime of 115 minutes. I don't know the budget of it, but I will say, I was watching it last night, I started at 11.30 at night. <laughs> okay, I know. that seems ambitious. Well, because I, I wasn't going to have time to watch it uh, between this and work today, so... Oh my god, Trace, we get it, you have a job. I have a day Stop job, boasting. oh my god. No, but actually, I thought, because I've seen this movie twice before, and I remember thinking it was very, very slow. I yes. thought it kind of flew by when I watched it last night. Yeah, I ended up having to watch it in two halves because I kind of did the same thing, only unlike you, I do not work a conventional day job. So I was able to have the luxury of breaking this up, but it was not as bad as I remembered it being either. But I do find that in my memory, 
the only thing that I really recalled is like the man in the sack and the ending. Like it's crazy how much of the middle section I forgot. Well, because this movie is essentially three films. I mean, it's like a romantic comedy for the first act. Mm -hmm. Then like it's a police investigation. Well, he's not a police officer, but it's an investigation film in the second half. Right. Well, because the second act is kind of split between their courtship, which is done very. It's more of like a romantic drama in that case. And then, yeah, it becomes a police procedural or police investigation. And then, yeah, then the last act is just, like, a horror show. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, luckily there's not really much information to relay. Um, I don't have an opening weekend rank, but when it opened in the States, it did end up with a domestic gross of $131,296. And that's it. I have nothing else to say about the box office. But okay. it was received very well by critics and audiences. Um, I that The audience score has to be, like, modern audiences. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah um but uh yeah you're looking at 81 percent of rotten tomatoes uh from critics and an 80 percent from audiences but a metacritic score of 69 out of 100 but an audience mm. score of 8.3 out of 10 yeah that smacks of people rediscovering this film way after the fact after people like quentin tarantino you know put it as one of the scariest films he's ever seen well you know what the, i actually heard about it um whenever bravo was doing their 100 scariest movie moments which i think think was in the mid 2000s and it was like yeah it was in the top 20 i think and i just remember yeah i'm talking about the vomit bowl which holy fuck is still gross to this day see so disgusting yeah i it's and they really just let that camera linger on that man drinking it it's gross you betcha uh and actually listeners if you haven't seen this movie um surprisingly it's not what you're imagining it to yes. be is probably not quite as bad as it actually is. And all of the violence is relegated to the last like 20, 25 minutes of this two hour movie. And to be honest, most of what you're actually seeing is not there. This is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre situation. For the most part, the violence is all in your imagination with some really good sound effects. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and we'll get into it when we talk about the ending, because I feel like that's going to take up a lot of the podcast. But um, you can handle it, I promise. No, I don't promise that. No, I would not promise that. (laughs) I've... Let's just say that Brian started to watch this with me, then he got bored, and then it was just a bunch of, what the fuck? What the fuck is she? Oh my god! Why? Oh, you didn't from warn the him? other side of the room. Oh no, I don't warn him. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this is directed by uh, T- Takashi Miike. I don't think I've seen another one of his films. Oh my gosh, really? I've yeah. Well, I mean, the ones I have listed are each the Killer, One Miss Call, and the Masters of Horror imprint episode, which I've yes. seen parts of that Masters of Horror episode. I've seen like the violent parts, right? But he's has like over a hundred credits to his name, and I can't, I don't think I've seen one. Yeah, I've seen a couple of them. I'm not a purist by any stretch of the imagination, but mm. he is crazy prolific. Or he was. I don't know if he's pumping them up quite as quickly as he does now. But like when I would go to Fantasia a couple years ago, like sometimes he would have two films in competition. Yeah, he. I think the last thing I remember him releasing, it was during Fantastic Fest, was on Blade of the Immortal. And that's the thing. It's like he does a lot of Yakuza movies, which yeah. don't really interest me that much. Um, and I base it on absolutely nothing. Like I, <laughs> I haven't like seen enough Yakuza movies his movies to like you know make a judgment call it's just not something that i'm like oh yeah i'm gonna go take two and a half hours to go see that because i think that movie was two and a half hours long yeah he he does tend to make a lot of longer films as well i've seen ichi it's kind of like the last act of this film stretched out to feature length it is super gory and graphic but Mm -hmm. it's like basically just a crime drama i I mean that's the one that i want to see and then i've never seen one miss call neither his version or the american remake but i've heard that i don't need to see the american remake (laughs) 
I've seen the American remake, and dear Lord, dear Lord, I've seen such sights that I will. Yeah, no, it's no. So, um, but yeah, so that's kind of. I mean, that, that, there's not really much more to say about it. So, why don't you take us into what this film's about? Okay, here we go. Bear with me. Mm-hmm. When his wife Ryoko. Miyuki Matsuda mm-hmm. dies of cancer. Our protagonist, Aoyama. I, so I was saying Aoyama. Aoyama? I don't know. Aoyama, um, Aoyama. I, 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 Let's uh, say Aoyama. I'm going to say Aoyama because when I was reading the book. Because, no, you can say however you want. Well, just one of us will be right. Um, but when I was reading the book, I was saying Aoyama. Like it's like you're pronouncing the A-O. Aoyama. Okay. Aoyama. <laughs> God damn it. It's okay. Just say what you're going to do. I'm just going to say main guy. <laughs> Luckily, the villain's name is really easy to pronounce. This is so true. Yes. Uh, okay. And he's played by Ryo Ishibishi. Who, Ishibashi. The only, I mean, he's in Suicide Club, but he's also the detective in the US version of The Grudge. And so when I was watching this, that's all I could picture him as. I definitely remembered him. But then I, you know how sometimes you're like, have I seen this person or am I basically just being a racist and confusing them with somebody else because i also thought that with his friend and then i when i looked up his credits i was like oh i've seen him in stuff too i i have one credit of his where i was like oh and we'll get to it but go ahead okay say the name for me again aoyama aoyama like aoyama but like fast aoyama okay aoyama and I could be totally wrong, but that's how I say it. <laughs> that's, this is what we're sticking with. And if you fuckers don't like it, you can deal with that later. <laughs> Aoyama becomes a widower and single father to his son, Shigehiko. So you can just say Shige, because that's what they call him Shige? in the book. Sh- Shige. 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 Okay. Uh, played by Tetsu Sawaki. Jesus Christ. After many years, Shige encourages his father to remarry and over drinks with his movie business friend, Yoshikawa, who is played by Jun Kunimura. Okay, so I, I was saying Jun Kunimura. Sounds better. I, I don't understand what your issue is with reading, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, just all reading in general, completely illiterate. Um, but yeah, no, uh, he's also in Ichi the Killer, but his thing for me was he plays Boss Tanaka in Kill Bill Volume 1. And in there case, we go. In case That's you, what it was. Yes, in case you don't know, listeners, Boss Tanaka is the guy that infamously gets his head chopped off by Lucy Liu when he brings up her Chinese or Japanese and American heritage as a negative. <laughs> I've watched well that. Done. I know. Uh, I've watched that clip of her killing him multiple times in my life, and it's great it's a crowd pleaser yeah i mean as the entire movie but, is. That's what I'm saying. like i mean like it's like a he's in the movie for like three minutes and yeah it's like, a hot his time. face is imprinted on my mind forever or his oh, head wow just the head just maybe the flying head. through the air <laughs> <laughs> okay so yashikawa ends up encouraging him to pursue an audition for a new wife and Aoyama says that he wants a young woman who works and has a skill like piano or Japanese dance. So they put together this fake audition for a fictitious pilot that could also turn into a real movie called Tomorrow's Heroine, which is a romance film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically, they're after this obedient and well-trained girl. So it's not the best look for your protagonist. I'm just going to say. And the, and the book, and I, I do want to mention everyone, so I know I've mentioned the book, but it is based on a book that's only 190 pages long. Uh, it's written by Ryu Murakami. And mm-hmm. um, it's 
pretty much the exact same tale. There are some minor differences, but it pretty much like the movie follows the plot of the book beat for beat, but actually adds stuff to it, which is kind of a rarity for a book to film adaptation. You know, usually you have to cut things out of the book, but because it's so short, it's like the movie adds. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's actually very much like a tarantula, the skin I live in situation where the book is relatively short and to the point, And then the film, I don't want to say indulges, but it elaborates on it to such an extent that I think you get a bit of a, a more in-depth picture. Yeah, I think I read somewhere that someone says like when you watch the movie, the book just seems like an outline by comparison. Oh, wow. Okay, mm -hmm. that's interesting. And yeah. he's also, um, sorry, the author, is it Mar... Mar Ryu Murakami. Murakami, yeah. He's a he's a very famous Japanese writer, like one of their most significant, isn't he? Yeah, he wrote um, Piercing, which came, uh, the movie adaptation of that came out last year with Mia Wasikowska. And he also wrote a book called, uh, something, I think it's like In the Miso Soup or something that everyone has told me to read. So add that to your book, your book reading list, I guess. Pretty much. Okay. So Aoyama stumbles on an application amongst the many women who apply for this of a young woman named Asami. Thank God for her easy to pronounce name. Yeah. And the actress is played by, or the actress is Ehi Shino. So I was saying Ehi Shina. So it's like you're pronouncing both I, Shina. Okay. Ehi Shina. Ehi Shina. Jesus Christ. You know what? I'm, <laughs> you're I'm pronouncing every... with her name. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It's Asami. Her name's Asami. Yes. Uh, and she is a classically trained dancer. So at the audition, Aoyama claims that he feels like a criminal as the women all blend together in this montage of inane and obtrusive questions. And it's filmed like a comedy. Like this, this audition is played for laughs and it goes on yes. for almost 10 minutes. And I want to talk about this in more detail. So, okay. Because I've got a riff. So. <laughs> okay. Uh, then Asami comes in. So she's number 28 out of the 30 that he shortlisted for this role. And this is the first time that Aoyama asks questions and even schedules a follow-up meeting with her. So Yoshikawa warns him that something doesn't feel right about her. And it turns out later on that her references don't check out. She has no connections to all of the things that she put down. So this woman is either a liar or she's not telling the whole truth. And of course, then there's also the strange moving burlap bag that we see in her house when she's waiting for phone calls. <laughs> so Aoyama and Asami eventually go on this great all-day date. They've got like a lunch thing. They've got a dinner thing. Everything is going super well, so much so that he tells his son that he plans to propose. The new couple go away for a weekend, but before they consummate the relationship, Asami reveals these burn scars on her upper thighs and explains that, you know, she's got some trauma like which we already know because she had talked about how by leaving her dance career behind she had ex essentially accepted death so it's one of the things that attracted Aoyama to him, to yeah. her so it like made um, her more mature in his eyes or whatever yeah and i think also that she had kind of like accepted a fate that mm -hmm. was larger than her own which you know feeds into that subservient thing that he's looking for right uh okay and then she asks him to love her and only her to which he agrees, because, of course, there's, like, a half-naked lady in front of him, and he wants to get to Bone Town. But, of course, he obviously does not understand the ramifications of what she's asking. And in the morning, she's gone. She's completely disappeared. So this is when the film turns into a bit more of a detective show. Yeah. So... Aoyama turns to Yoshikawa for help, but his friend refuses. He doesn't want him to go after this girl because he thinks that she's kind of bad news. His spider sense is tingling. Yeah. 
Aoyama goes into investigation mode. He eventually tracks down Asami's old dance instructor, Mr. Shimada. Oh, I didn't put his name down, but he only appears in a couple of scenes. Yeah. So uh, he is a crippled man in a wheelchair who has ruined feet. Mm-hmm. Warning signs. And then in a flashback, it is revealed that uh, Shimada is the one who burned Asami's thighs. And then next up on the quest... Uh, Aoyama goes to the stone fish, whose female owner was murdered and dismembered, and there were extra body parts discovered amongst her her various appendages. Here we go. (laughs) When Aoyama returns home, he is drugged, and he hallucinates a very extended dream sequence or flashback sequence. It all merges and mixes together. Yes, this, I have issues with the flashback sequence, or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, because they include information that he couldn't possibly know. Exactly. Exactly. And this is why I think this is like that that particular part hung on my memory of this film, which is why I was always like, it doesn't make a lot of sense. No. Yeah. And we'll we'll talk about why some people have issues with it and some people don't. Yeah. So uh, so this extended dream sequence or flashback includes details of Asami's childhood abuse, as well as her revenge that she achieved using a wire garrote, a piano wire. Back in the present, Asami administers a paralytic agent that still allows Aoyama to feel pain, and then she slowly begins to inject him with acupuncture needles, first in his belly and then around his eyes. She then removes his left foot using the wire and begins to work on the right foot. At this point, Shike unexpectedly returns home. There is a brief suggestion that all of this has been a dream, but the reality is that Asami has truly attacked them. Uh, Shike winds up knocking her down a flight of stairs, and the film ends with the pair of lovers staring at each other across the room as snippets of dialogue from Asami plays in which she describes being lonely and feeling that he was the only one who truly understood her. It makes me laugh that you're saying Shike as if there's a K there. It's a G. She-gay. Like, she-gay! Yeah, but there's a K later on in the rest of his name that you're not addressing. Shigehigo. Yeah, that's your, that's your core element. Shige. So, this is, oh. um, <laughs> there's a lot in this movie. Well, let me ask you, what was your first impression of this film? Like, when did you first see it, and what did you think of it then? I definitely saw it in high school. Um, it was one of those movies, I, mean, I saw the clip from it, I, so I knew about the ending of this movie, because that was your moment on the 100 Scariest Movie Moments, which... In hindsight, that might be why I didn't love it the first time I saw it. Because if you go into the movie expecting that, you gotta wait a long time to get there. Doesn't help when you have, like, your movie poster or your box art is literally this, you know, demure-looking woman in a leather apron and gloves holding a giant fucking needle. Well, and all the promo pictures for it are her holding the piano wire. So it's like, I mean, I get it, you know, if you're marketing what is technically a horror film what else are you gonna use i mean i guess you can use the flapping tongue which i yeah it's interesting because i feel like this is one of those scenarios where this film was coming out at a time where there wasn't a a significant amount of like imported horror films from japan like this was before j-horror became a big thing so we weren't talking about ringu we weren't talking about the grudge yet yeah Um, well and interestingly enough this is one of the few like popular japanese films that has not received an american remake yeah oh my god thank goodness i mean although i could imagine a remake nowadays because the themes in this film are very prevalent to what you know, yeah. No, if, it's, it's, if you read the modern the modern day reviews, it's very much like this is a film for the Me Too movement. Yeah. And you're like Jesus fucking Christ. Not everything is for the Me Too movement. 
Yeah. <sighs> it's lazy journalism. But, but no. So, I mean, I I thought it was fine when I watched it, but I, I, I was probably like 16 or 17. I remember being very confused because I was just like, wait, what happened? Like, did this what? actually happen? Yeah. Yeah. It's really weird. And I mean, what? And. We really, uh, when I watched it again in college, I kind of had. I mean, we even like because it was it was for an Asian horror film class, and I, I we discussed it. And I was still just like, I don't, I don't really get this movie. And then watching it last night, I was like, maybe I was just stupid. I don't know. I feel like this is one of those things where if you also just try to casually watch it, you're you're gonna miss a lot of things, right? And I guess I mean, yeah, I, I was definitely being a much more attentive viewer. Not that I wasn't being attentive when I was watching it in college, because obviously I was writing a paper on it, but. It's, yeah, it, I don't know. But I, I enjoy it a lot more on this, you know, rewatch now. And I mm. may, maybe reading the book helped it a bit, too. I don't know. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Quite possibly. Yeah. By the way, what was your paper on this film about? I don't remember. Oh. I did get to write a paper on my, uh, on the, well, this is for horror film, not Asian horror film, but on the Last House on the Left remake. Because I got to write yeah. paper on remakes. I know. Yeah, that film degree is great, y'all. It really, it really took me places. Hey, it made that Patreon episode that we did on, on The Last House on the Left remake quite a bit <laughs> enjoyable to record. So. Nice plug, but yes. Support us on Patreon. Pay $5 a month. It's great. Yeah, so I mean, I I didn't love it the first time. I thought it was fine the second time, and I liked it a lot more this time. What, what about you? Okay, so I caught this a couple years after it would have come stateside. I watched it because the student AV club equivalent <laughs> uh, did programming blocks. So they screened this and they screened not the grudge. Ringu. Ringu. Thank you. Yeah. So this was kind of like my introduction to Japanese horror. And I had no idea what to expect, except for the fact that everyone was going on and on about the finale and how it was like the most shocking thing that you could possibly ever see and nothing would prepare you. Yeah. And in that regard, they were mostly correct because really, this would have been probably 2002, 2003. So we yeah. hadn't gotten into Saw. We hadn't gotten into Hostel. Like, I, I wasn't extremely well versed in some of the more grindhouse exploitation films of the 70s. So this, this was a bit legitimately shocking for me. Well, and I think because with when you're talking about a grindhouse 70s film, though, like the, the, the entire film like has like the graphic violence like the, the specific tone whereas this film it not doesn't come out of nowhere but it's very much like whoa holy shit like ugh. yeah i i read in one review that somebody said it takes a turn but <laughs> yes that is a bit of an understated way but it's kind of also extremely appropriate because so much of this film feels like it's almost a treatise on japanese culture and how lonely everybody is and how this ridiculous lengths that this man will go to just find a new wife. Yeah. I also remember at the time when I first saw it, I, I didn't see his behavior as problematic as I do now. So I thought, you know, oh, he's lying to these women, but I didn't think of him as a disgusting creep, which is more or less what I think of now. You know, it's... I don't want to say it's a fine line because I, you're right. Like, everything he's doing is fucking awful, but he is such a genuinely nice guy that, and I also wonder how, I mean, how, how much of that is, you know, the culture, 
and also just how men were raised, which I mean, like, th- then that sounds like I'm making an excuse for all men. Like, <laughs> they're rapists, <laughs> but that's how they were raised. Oh, blame it on their mamas. <laughs> no, Don't but blame I, your mama. I will say no because, and that's why I wanted to read the book because I wanted to get more in the characters' heads. And okay. they, I tried to like pick like highlight some like misogynistic dialogue because that is the thing. Like, you know, some people view this movie as feminist, some people view it as misogynistic, and I can see the, both arguments like for what they are. And like, I mean, I, yeah, you know, I think it contains both. Yep. Well, the, at the end of the day, though, I think it's uh, like, how do you think the movie is taking all of this stuff? And maybe we'll come to a conclusion today. I don't know. <laughs> Lofty goals. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But um, but yeah, I mean, like, there we'll were... be making a final declaration and whatever we decide will stand. So Forever. at this point, everyone will just have to agree with us by the end of the podcast. So yes. Prepare yourselves. Exactly. But no, there's <laughs> a couple things like, you know, like, he's like, uh, oh, I don't want to date an actress because there's something inherently wrong with actors with girls who want to be actresses, blah, 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 like little lines like that. Honestly, mm-hmm. though. Yoshikawa, his friend, is much more despicable in the book, and I think it serves as a better foil to make Aoyama not look quite as terrible. Okay. But in the movie, they don't really do that. Like, I think, I mean, Yoshikawa's like, whatever, but he doesn't, like, have as many reprehensible qualities as he has in the book. Uh, so it no. makes them more on the equal equal playing ground. Yeah, he he starts off kind of bad in that introductory scene where they're having drinks in the bar, and he overhears that group of girls who are chattering and he's like oh these stupid girls like where are all the nice girls in this country like and it's it's not despicable but it's obviously you know he's passing judgment on a group of women he knows literally nothing about um they also tone down shige uh because shige in the book he has a line like he says it multiple times he says all the girls in my school are so ugly why can't we have pretty girls blah 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 and it's like a couple lines like that again not terrible but very much like this is a stupid little fucking teenager i hate him so he's in high school in the book i think he's supposed to be 15 Okay, because he's obviously college age in the movie, no? I don't know, no, no, because uh, the movie flashes forward. So the opening scene has Shige as like a little kid, and then it flashes forward seven years. So it's supposed to be like from age of, the age of eight to the age of 15. Yeah, okay. I read that there was another like miniature time jump after their fishing scene. Oh, see, I didn't get that. I mean, maybe you're right, but I mean, I didn't, I didn't get that. Because well, why would they do a time jump if they already told you seven years later? Why would they do another time jump without telling you how much longer it was? Yeah, this is fair. I don't know. So, it's so complex because there's the issues of nature versus nurture because the, the abuse that Asami experiences, and this is this is one, the one of the big differences in the book, though, because in the book, I don't believe, so she is abused by her uncle, and then she goes back home and she lives with her, her mom and her new stepfather, and then the stepfather abuses her, too. The movie adds the element of her ballet teacher who sexually assaults her. Yes. The book does not have that. Which is, th- I think is interesting because the element of dance as a bit of a performance art that she has lost, but it's also like, it's such a predatory thing, right? Because we see these repeated shots in the film of her in her little, you know, leotards and she's dancing always by herself. Mm-hmm. And again, like, you know, part of this is that you have to take everything that you see in the film as a grain of salt because a lot of it we're meant to infer is actually Aoyama's imaginations or his hallucinations. Kind of, but it's not even like he's the narrator of the film. Like, the the, the, the film, t- is it third person omniscient? Is that like, it's an omniscient narrative where it's like, you're not really like seeing this world through the eyes of any particular character, even though Aoyama is your protagonist, un- until I guess maybe the end, like when they start getting those flashbacks and shit. 
Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that came out in some of these reviews is this idea that people interpret the point from when they go on their weekend retreat and they have sex together and he wakes up and she's gone. A lot of people, well, not a lot, some people have inferred that at that point, the film fractures into two different perspectives and the stuff that you're seeing of her background or what she's doing that he couldn't possibly know it's almost like he's dreamwalking or projecting and then some of it is actually her her lived experience so i don't know <sighs> take take of that what you will i mean i i we can go to that later because I, I, yeah, I, I have such a problem with that fucking flashback scene. Like, I would like it so much more if it was just an actual flashback and if he wasn't standing in the room watching it happen. Right. Yeah. Well, that's that's the piece that complicates it, right? It is, and I'm, I, it, it frustrates me. But yeah, so let's talk about how he's a giant prick. Oh, right. Sorry. So <laughs> we'll go to the misogyny first. Yeah, we can go to Asami later. Yeah, he's terrible. I mean, he's, and it's completely objectifying all these women based off a fucking picture and an essay. I mean, mm -hmm. and then all these women are made to look silly in their audition. And one of them even gets naked. So I, Oh, Oh, actually. Yeah. How did you feel about the nudity in the film? Uh, so here's the thing, particularly watching it this time with my rose colored glasses taken firmly off and just looking at his behavior as something that's inherently dishonest and at worst, extremely predatory, particularly when you've got these two men who are kind of in on the joke and right. all of these women who think that they're just like, they're trying to land a fucking job. Like, yeah. So I found it really disgusting, particularly when Aoyama says things like, oh, it's like, you know, shopping for a new car. And you're just like, oh, Jesus Christ, guy, you're you're conflating a woman with an owned piece of property. Yeah, well, and that's and that's what's because we're introduced to him on his wife's deathbed. So you're immediately supposed to feel sorry for him, you know, mm -hmm. and like and, and understandably so um, as she walks in, you know, his little boy and like, you know, watches his mom die, too. And then you have and then the, the next time you see him, he's fishing with his son. He's, you know, a good father, blah, blah, blah. And then this happens. Except that he's obviously also super greedy because this this idea that you could be satisfied with what you have, aka the small fish, he's yeah. unwilling to compromise on that. He only wants what he wants, which is the big fish. Ooh, I didn't even put that together. Look at you with your metaphors and allegory. <laughs> well, part of me was like, what are we supposed to take from the scene? Is it just that they like fishing or that we're establishing this relationship? And then I was like, oh, okay. So this is obviously feeding into not just the dynamic that they have as a father-son and the fact that he's raising him as a widower, but also this idea that he he doesn't see what's right in front of him, right? Like so much of this film right. is him saying, I want perfection. I want this ideal. And meanwhile, he's got the secretary that he fucked and then fucked over. Mm -hmm. He's got the housekeeper who's flirting with him. And like, he's just not seeing these women who are in his life because he's so focused on getting some young, demure, obedient lady i do think the secretary subplot is a bit excessive um in the book he does mention how even when he was married he cheated on his wife frequently but he always respected her and loved her and then she never really cared <laughs> okay that I is know. a very different reading isn't uh, it exactly but yeah but there's no like because in the movie i think that he's fucking the secretary like because again like, in the, the seven years since his wife died i don't know if we're led to believe that he cheated on his wife with her Ooh, it's very unclear. Mm -hmm. I think you could probably make the argument for either way. I mean, I guess it doesn't really, at the end of the day, how do you feel about Aoyama? If you really find him despicable, then you're probably just going to assume that he cheated on his wife with her. Right. But yeah, no. And so we go through this 
So he makes his selections, and then we've got this just this montage. As you said, it feels like it goes on forever. Like I feel like we honestly saw nearly all of the twenty-eight women before we got to Asami, <laughs> and they're asking them the most intrusive and just disgusting questions. Like, oh, you know, have you ever thought of doing like? porn or sex work well some of them are like really basic like how do you earn your money for a living blah 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 there's the one woman who is let's say um uh aesthetically challenged and they like they she didn't get to talk they just make a face like gross and then like that's the end of her scene yeah yeah it's uh it's pretty disgusting i i did want to say the the rift so the way that i'm going to try to make this funny because i was so thoroughly repulsed is that plays very similar to the audition sequence in Bring It On. <laughs> Which, <laughs> so, I think Bring It On was 2000. So what you're saying is, the director of Bring It On watched Audition. <laughs> yes. And was like, you know what? We could have some fun with this. <laughs> with cheerleaders. Um, no, uh, you're not incorrect, actually. I mean, it, it's the Like, fun- the vibe is almost the same kind of comedic, like, we're going to, you know, cut through a bunch of these different women. They're going to have weird different quirks. Some of them are going to be really interesting. Some of them are just going to be hot messes. Mm-hmm. And I think at this point, you're you're meant to think that it's kind of fun. Like, ah, these two guys, they're just shooting the shit. They're seeing all these ladies. And then we get to Asami. And that's when the film kicks in proper, right? Because we've been waiting for this moment where they actually meet. Yeah, and, and yeah, so basically for the first half of the film, you have just women constantly being objectified the entire mm-hmm. first half of the movie up until, yeah, when Asami just flat, flat out leaves him. Uh, but he does genuinely fall in love with her? Yes? Yes, question mark? I I think he does. He thinks he, he, thinks he does. I mean, whether or not like it's real or not is, I guess, up to, up to the viewer. But yeah. he, I mean, because he does want a wife and he does care for her and love her, but it's almost like grief porn where it's like the more like traumatic backstory she gives him, the more oh, into yeah. her he becomes. Yeah, he's he's almost more turned on by this, this veneer that she poses, like... She, well, clearly, because he doesn't actually know any fucking thing about her because she's either completely lying to him or, you know. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's the other thing, too, though. So, yes, he's lying to her about this whole thing, but she's also lying to him about a lot of stuff. This is true. And I think that's actually where the film gets so much of its power from, is that this isn't about a terrible man who gets his comeuppance this isn't about a woman who's been sexually assaulted or mistreated throughout her life who's getting revenge on men. It is both of those things. Mm-hmm. Both of them are equal and true. And so when I see these, you know, these hot takes on the film about how, you know, oh, this is feminist. Oh, this is misogynist. It's like, yeah, they're both. Like, it, yeah, it, it, it is doing all of that at once. And mm-hmm. that's what makes it complicated and interesting. But that's then where you have to say, what is the movie? And that's just kind of which behavior is it advocating for or which style? And I mean, I don't I don't think it's doing any of that. Like, I don't think it's actually saying here is the way to read this film. Right. I think it's acknowledging that relationships are totally fucked up and messy. And honestly, I mean, you you've seen Piercing, right? Yeah, I have. 
Okay, so if people haven't seen Piercing, it's also a great film. It's a lot smaller in scope than this. I thought it was but... fine. I probably need to rewatch it. It's also very short. I think it's like under eighty. Uh, it's under eighty five minutes. But yeah, that sounds about right. But it's it's very much playing in the same kind of minefield of murky sexual relationships between men and women who they've got more on their minds than what they initially present and they're more complicated like which i think is fascinating it's this isn't a simplistic you know rape revenge film this isn't you know a misogynist man pulls a con on this you know poor woman like it's so much more interesting and nuanced and layered than all of that and so okay what do you think then of the fact that they added in a sexual abuse subplot like is it not enough that her she was verbally and physically abused by her uncle and her stepfather? Like, why add in the sex? I did like the touch though, that she essentially like she's a she's never like she, she's emotionally stunted. Like when she's feeding the man his, her vomit, she beca- like literally becomes a child again, and she like pets him as he's drinking the vomit. Yeah. It's, I mean, mm-hmm. obviously it's like a literal visual representation of like what her mental state is like, but. It's like, do we need the rape story? The 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 childhood molestation? I don't know. <sighs> it's tricky. It feels like now we're living in a time period where there's a lot more audience pushback against things like giving a woman a rapey backstory for the sake of making her broken or making her someone that needs to be saved or making her someone who hates men. I don't know that we were living in that world back in 2000, so I I do wonder if it's a bit of shorthand to say, like, this is part of what broke this woman. I mean, for me, I think if you want to talk about something that's disturbing but effective, I think the visual of the heated chopsticks and her getting burned mm-hmm. it's very suggestive of rape, like, because it's happening on her upper thighs, the way that the camera is framed, it kind of looks... You know, like it, it looks sexualized in a right. lot of ways. So I, I kind of would have been happy, happy in quotation marks yeah. with just that, because well, I think that that's powerful enough. And unlike the most rape revenge films, though, you don't actually see any sexual abuse in this movie. It's just very much like this. Like, well, I guess when they show him masturbating um, in his wheelchair, <laughs> it's very heavily implied that he yes. sexually abused her. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, do we need to know that about her stepfather and that kind of stuff? It's like, I mean, I think part of it is that it's setting up this idea that every interaction that she has had uh, with men has always been tainted by grotesque sexual encounters. And, And it's interesting, right? Because this film is talking about love and sex as though they are also separate things, right? Like Right. So for her, sex is something that can only come when a person pledges to love her and only her. Mm-hmm. I was reading the Wikipedia after I watched it, and um, the scene that I for- <laughs> love how you talk about it like it's a dirty. <laughs> it is a dirty secret. So I was reading the Wikipedia. I just because I feel like because well, then I'm not a real scholar. I'm going to the fucking Wikipedia. I'm not reading a book. It's the cliff notes. It's the starter place to go. But I like to do that just in case like there's something I miss. And like sure. I actually had forgotten that the the POV scene when she sneaks into the house mm-hmm. after the maid leaves, after the nanny leaves. I totally forgot that was a thing. Like, I just didn't remember it. But in the 
Wikipedia notes, it says, oh, she sees a picture of Ryoko, and that's what sets her off. That's what makes her say, oh, he's never going to not love her. He's he's always going to love her in addition to me. Yeah. Well, that's why in the summary, I made a point of saying that when he agrees to it, he doesn't really understand what it encompasses. Because if you do want to look at him as a guy who is legitimately looking for a wife and has legitimately fallen for this mm -hmm. woman, when he says, yes, I agree to love only you... He isn't lying to her, but in her interpretation, love is all-encompassing. So he can't possibly have a son and a dog. Well, I was going to because... say, so the son is the big thing. So because because she, she loses it when they're having sex, or when they're about to have sex. And the movie glosses over this fact, but the book does say, like, because he, he doesn't remember she drugs him. And he remembers mentioning Shige, because up until that point, he, she, he'd never mentioned his son to her. Yeah, well, and ladies and gentlemen, this is why when you are thinking of proposing marriage and maybe spending a lifetime with somebody, it's generally a good idea to introduce them to like your friends, your family, so that everybody knows what everybody's getting into. Yeah, and then the exact line when it's like saying it's uh, the book just goes, it hadn't just been a misunderstanding after all, it was about Shige. She hadn't been able to accept or forgive the fact that Aoyama had a son whom he adored. There's never even a mention of Ryoko, which the movie obviously adds that. So but she was already going to do what she was going to do when she snuck into that house. It's just like Ryoko's yes. picture was fuel to the fire. Yeah, I mean, because I think at that point, she's broken in. I mean, she's the one who has chosen to disappear. So yep. they they consummate their relationship, and then the next morning she's gone. And in the film, it's I think it could be inferred, or you could read it as something changed. And as a result, she has decided like she can't pursue the relationship. And for that period of time, like we're only focusing on Aoyama, yeah, because he's he's off in detective mode, and we have no idea what's happening with her. Whereas. It, like, it's interesting that that is the breaking point, because in the film, we really have no idea what has set her off. And the next time that we see her in the present day, or what we can assume is the present day, is right. that POV shot. So she's chosen to go away and separate herself from that. And then when she comes back, like, she's breaking into his house. It's also <laughs> the only shot of the movie, though, that is a POV shot. And, like, I wonder what was the motivation stylistically to do it that way? Like, was it to add, like, attention to it? Or, I mean, yeah, I, I don't like, know. Like, are we meant to believe that it's some other person? Right? Like, oh, that secretary subplot is about to come back in a big way. You know what? I wonder. I wonder if maybe that was the, like, intention of, like, maybe it's the crazy secretary. Maybe I mean, briefly. I don't know. Well, can there, cause is, when is it when he starts imagining, like, he's fucking... Oh, that's in the flashback scene. I'm sorry. When he imagines, yeah, but at like, that point, it's because he's been drugged, right? Yeah, but that's, like, later. I was thinking it was maybe, like, when they were... Like, it was, like, right when she disappeared. Like, he he fantasized about that. But no, it's it's during the weird flashback scene where he's seeing things that he can't possibly know. Yeah. And yeah, like, the woman blowing him is the secretary. Then it's the son's girlfriend. Then it's, mm -hmm. like, all these people... But yeah, so I think we got on a digression, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> As we are apt to do. I know. Um, but no, so, you know, it's a bold move with the childhood trauma, and then of course it's like, well, is it going to make this girl insane? Like, her being abused like this? Is it going to make her crazy? And both the movie and the book do basically say, yes, that 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 is why she's nuts. <sighs> hmm. Did you ever watch this and and not think that she's nuts? Well, no, because well, because going into it, I knew that she was going to cut his foot off. 
<laughs> but I do love that Yoshikawa the whole time is like, there's something wrong about her. But, yeah. I mean, do you think the movie's trying to hide that fact from the audience? I don't know. I just... Here's the thing. I I think that there's undeniably something wrong with her. I don't think everyday people will just cut off a person's foot or, you know, hold a man in a burlap sack and then feed him your vomit. Like, the, well, maybe that's a bit of a kink. Who knows? We're not going to yuck your yum. Oh, yeah. That is you. But uh, I, I guess the thing that I found really interesting about the climax, and I don't want to go into it like in too much detail because I know we'll get there. I know. I just, I don't think that she thinks she's crazy. I think that she no, thinks not at all. that she's love struck. Well, that's that is again going into your nature versus nurture, though, because she was raised by men who abused her, who called her disgusting, who did all this stuff. Like it was emotional abuse and on top of physical abuse. And then, like the first, maybe I'm assuming sexual experience she has. Although I guess also, yeah, I'm assuming that the teacher molested her, but we don't really know that either. I guess. Well, I mean, he def like he definitely burned her. No, he did. He definitely burned her, and he definitely like masturbated, like whatever. Or maybe I mean that's also kind of like one of those psycho- psychedelic flashbacks. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess yeah, we don't really know for a fact. There's there's never an explicit mention, but I think it, I think it's very heavily implied that he did. So yeah. she's had these three terrible male role models her entire life, which is of course shaping yes how she views love, how she views care. Okay, so here's my wrench in all of this and it's something that when i was reading reviews when i was looking at like feminist discussions and all these kinds of things it never comes up and it's it's because it's such a brief part of this film but Mm -hmm. i don't think it's insignificant particularly given the nature of our respective podcast yeah she has a sexual relationship with a woman in this film where what are you getting that from the bar owner okay see maybe 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 but my thought process was this i thought because the guy in the sack worked at the bar did he not no no he oh you're right oh shit you're right okay no i'm buying into that you're right so yeah because the guy in the sack was her um quote-unquote agent so the the bar is the place that she supposedly worked, and then he goes. So Ayoyama goes there in during his detective mode, and he talks to the upstairs neighbor and says, "Oh, there was this brutal murder in this bar, and the bar owner was killed." And of course, because we are a heteronormative, slightly misogynistic society, I and I'm assuming you probably immediately went, "Oh, she killed this guy who owned the bar." Right. But then you hear that the bar owner was actually it's a she. Female. It's a woman. Yeah. And then during his psychedelic dream journey, we actually see her on the stairs holding this woman that she is murdering. Oh. And I was like, that is intimate. Like, she is she's clutching her. Like, it's actually the most physically intimate that we see of all of her encounters. That's, you know what? I'm not going to lie. I didn't even, because I, I don't recall the shot of her killing her on the stairs. Um and I just watched it's this so listening. brief. It's so super brief. Yeah, um, but no. I, but I did catch when they said the bar owner was female. I did catch that. Um, but yeah, because she she just says I, I work for a friend three nights a week. It's just it's such a weird, interesting thing, and the fact that nobody else catches on to it. I mean, it is so brief. But part of it, I think, is interesting because if the entire you know, analysis and conversation about this film is always that, oh, she's been sexually assaulted by all of these men. She's never had a positive relationship. 
But then we see that she has had this other relationship. We don't know the nature of it. We're not provided any of those details. But it's clearly not a female versus male thing. Well, this is it because the, then the feminist aspect, though, is kind of complicated because one of her victims, yeah, is a female. Yeah. So my reading was actually that she's kind of a pansexual because she falls in love with these individuals. And then when they don't adhere to her very rigid definition of what loving her and only her means, that's when she does away with them. Right. Well, and also, okay, I mean, would we even call it a revenge film? I mean, I guess for her, I mean, it's not even really revenge. Like I know. I don't think it's a revenge film at all because this is about keeping these people that she loves as close and dependent to her as possible. So she, in a way, is, is also looking for an obedient mate. Yeah. Well, no, because she says, like, you know, oh, you can't run away if you don't have any feet, um, yeah. which there's... Oh, that is there, blood-curdling. <laughs> there's, there's more information, though, of why she does the feet in the book. Um, okay, tell yeah. me. Well, okay. Just tell me. No, all right, so, all right, let me... <clears throat> I'm going to do a really quick dramatic reading. So, everyone, um, in the book, so, first of all, there's no person in the bag, there's no vomit, none of that's in the book. Um, oh, you, man. You don't for sure know that she's nuts until the last 20 pages. And again, it's a 190-page book. That she so. has, yeah, she has the former boss agent guy, and basically though he's already dead. So when Yoshikawa comes back, he's like, "Hey, just so you know, like, uh, the guy died a while ago, but they didn't know the circumstances of his death." And that's really all there is. But there is a line in the movie when she's talking about her past abuse, where her stepfather was handicapped. Uh, okay, he was in a wheelchair. So when it's all, when, when she's drugged Arayama, the book goes into a brief. And by brief, I mean one or two pages. Uh, explanation as to why she's crazy. Uh, this may work for you, this may not, but the movie obviously glosses over that and says, well, we don't need to tell you. Uh, which, <laughs> which I appreciate. I don't need a psycho explanation. So the line I said earlier, so I'm just going to continue it. So I said, she hadn't been able to accept or forgive the fact that Aoyama had a son whom he adored. Nor had Yamasaki a son. Oh, it's Yamasaki in the book, not Yamazaki. Stupid. Okay. Ever overcome, as Aoyama had believed, the trauma of being raised by a stepfather who beat and abused and reviled her. She still carried that trauma, still lived with it every day. Any man who betrayed or lied to her was the same as her stepfather. Therefore, according to her reasoning, such men should have, should have their feet severed to resemble him more closely. When not working at the part-time job that covered living expenses, this is the stonefish, uh, right. she, she spent all her time preparing for the next operation. She would become intimate with a man and simultaneously begin forging a plan to cut off his feet should he prove to be just like her stepfather. In her teens, she'd only dreamed up the plans and never carried them out. She didn't have a proper tool, for one thing. It was while cook watching a cooking show on TV that she discovered uh, the wire saw, a thin steel cable with teeth and a ring attached to either end. The TV chef had used it to cut effortlessly through a, a ham on the bone, saying that there was simply no other tool to match it for this sort of task. The wire saw had made everything possible. She read up on pharmaceuticals as well and found a way to get her hands on whatever drugs she needed. So it goes on, you know, and blah, blah, blah. Oh, and there is one other thing, though. In one of their dates, a man in a wheelchair who's missing his feet sees her and freaks out and wheels away, which isn't in the movie. I don't like the idea that she would let people go. Yeah. Like, I like this idea that she's almost a collector, and these people that disappoint her, she she doesn't stop loving them, although she may kill them if need be. Well, but that, that yeah, that's the thing, though. So, 
it, it, the book doesn't make it clear, you know, to what what does someone do to deserve death? Like, because yeah, she lets this one guy go. I mean, I'm assuming it, it never it never explicitly says that this guy is one of her victims. But I mean, again, guy without legs and a wheelchair sees her and freaks out. It's pretty obvious. But yeah, but then yeah, she kills her old boss who was a like a pig. Like he was she sleeping with all these women. The movie does. Well, I guess she just kills everyone. But but was her because she was not going to kill Ariyama. No, like the. I always thought that it would... She was going to kill Shige. Oh, yeah, for sure, because she has no attachment to him. Mm -hmm. Although, I mean, it's also, you know, if he hadn't have walked in, she would have just proceeded with the operation and presumably taken, you know, Ayoyama home. Oh, yeah, yeah, I guess that's okay, because, yeah, she didn't kill the first guy. He's just living in her house in a sack. I mean, the question is whether or not she would have then gotten rid of the former lover. Well, or but, she would have just kept him around. But then your question is, though, why does why does she kill the woman? Why does she yeah. keep the old agent? Why does she plan on keeping Aoyama, but she does kill the woman? Yep. I have no idea. It's it's like this tantalizing little thing that I just want to tease, and there's there's not enough there except to speculate on. See, I think what I had thought maybe was that the agent was sleeping with the bar owner. Okay. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if she ever mentions it at one point or another, whether they even knew each other. But I was thinking maybe if they were dating, he goes to the bar, like where she works, and and she has an affair with the, he has an affair with her, kills her, which would also explain why there were three extra bodies. Like his his tongue, his three fingers, and his ear were left at the crime scene where the woman died too. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm just totally supposing here. Like, like, just like you are with your queer reading, which I like your queer reading more, actually, <laughs> than my reaction. But then I'm like, why the fuck was the body parts there then? Yeah, um, I don't know. It's It's such a weird detail, right? Because it doesn't really fit with the rest of the narrative. There's no... I mean, she does toss that one foot when she oh, takes it off. That visual <laughs> is so good. I love the visual of that foot. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we're going to have any answer. So why don't we Why don't we just get to the beautiful gore, the, well, the piece de resistance of this film. Yeah. So she gets in. She um, drugs his drink. We get a really sad look at this dead dog with its tongue just hanging out. That's taken from the book, too, actually. But the book does have, like, two pages of the dog dying. She uses the wire saws on the dog's legs. Oh, no. And she oh, has drugged no. it, so it can't move. And, yeah, basically, when um, while Aoyama is, you know, paralyzed, he just sees the dog bleeding to death and just watches the life leave its eyes. And it's really sad. So I'm glad that the movie spares us that and just shows us its corpse instead. Yeah. Oh, man. But if you find yourself living in a horror film... Get rid of your pets immediately. God, I know. Um, but before we even get to the killing, you have to get... Yeah, well, I guess the, not even the gore, but yeah. So we have this flashback. So he gets yeah, drugged. Yeah, talk, talk me through this. <laughs> well, I, I'm trying to... I don't even know what I, if I can talk through. I didn't, like, do a play-by-play. Okay, so I, I've got it kind of broken down into five bullet points. Okay, you do it. So, <laughs> okay. And this is, like, not verbatim or anything. But, yeah, yeah, So it starts with uh, their earlier, I presume, lunch date where she talks about, uh, you know, the relationship that she had with her stepfather and how she was abused as a child. Yeah. And then it goes into a sequence where he sees his dead wife warning him that Asami is no good for him. Yes, but no, it, it's during their date. Like, she's at the yeah. table next to them. Yeah, which is, I think, how you are meant to know, because we revisit both the lunch date and the dinner date, I want to say three times. And we're given more information of the date each time. So the first time we see the date, it's like we don't get the full story. 
Yeah, which I think is important, right? Like this is another element where you can you can tell. Oh, we didn't actually ever name the person who wrote the script because it's not Takashi Miike. Oh yes, I'm sorry. Um, that person it's Daisuke Tingen. Okay. I'm going to say that, but he he also wrote the um, imprint Masters of Horror episode for Miike. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, so, but see, but, but the, him seeing his wife doesn't bother me. Him like more stories of the like whatever because him seeing his wife like I'm like okay cool like that's he's you know going crazy like he's yeah it's your clear signifier that this isn't just a flashback at this point we're now not only discovering new information that we as the audience didn't know but also it's a it's a very simple visual metaphor to say like hey this is not just a flashback this is him hallucinating yeah but (laughs) so then after that we get the sequence where the various women including asami his secretary and the son's girlfriend proposition him sexually and that seems to be taking place is that in his house or is that in her house i think it's in her house because then it morphs immediately to oh the bag's behind him yeah yeah so the bag starts to move and then we see that there's this mutilated person so this person doesn't have their tongue obviously missing an ear obviously missing feet yeah and then uh that's when we see it is a great visual it is a great visual great yeah Honestly, people in bags equal good movies. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, and then we get like this other weird flashback sequence where we actually get to see how she. Well, and this is the part that doesn't make sense, right? Is that we see her actually killing the dance instructor mm-hmm. using the wire, which is something that we hadn't seen before. And I, you know, we thought that he was still alive. But he's there watching it. Now, this, so this maybe makes sense because. I could buy this as to being, oh, he's assuming this is what happened mm-hmm. because, like, he saw, you know, he saw him with his feet off. Like, he, yeah. I don't know, maybe. But then, but him seeing her feed this man vomit doesn't make sense to me. No, he wouldn't know that. He wouldn't, I mean, he wouldn't even know that the, that she still has this guy alive, right? I get, well, like, the only way you can think of it is, is if, so you... Because he knew that there were extra body parts at the at the bar owner's yes. uh, crime scene, so he's making it up and assuming this. I don't I don't like that. I don't like that this movie isn't real. <laughs> I want this to be real. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting creative decision, right? Because mm-hmm. basically, the entire second, like the last half of this film, you're meant to not trust what you're seeing or you're meant to question what you're seeing and there's you know there's changes in color so some of these scenes are tinted blue and you know we have the pov shot which we haven't seen in any other part of the film Mm -hmm. uh we've got sequences that look like flashbacks but they also have you know our main character standing there watching them witnessing things he shouldn't know so i i like this idea that all of a sudden the film is constructed to make you question and wonder the validity of everything that you're seeing right it's not without its problems though right because you either accept that he's making all of this up in his mind or he's yeah he's making assumptions which is like well how does he know all this shit Or you're getting this sort of random intermingling of what he maybe assumes is happening and what actually did happen, which is that reading where people say, oh, now we're mixing her 
her real life events into it. I think it wouldn't bother me as much if we didn't see that she had him in the bag earlier in the film, which is waiting for the phone to ring. Like if yeah. we had never seen that before and we were just getting this in this flashback, then I could be like, okay, cool. So he's like assuming this is what happened. Right. I can maybe deal with that. But because we know it's, we know it's true, but then yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And I, it doesn't ruin the film for me by any means. I mean, I still like this film a lot. It's just, yeah, I don't understand why not just show it in a flashback or why not just show it? Like, I don't, yeah. like, why is he there? Why does he need to know this or imagine this or see this? I think because it makes it so much more delicious with what actually ends up happening to him. Because, yeah. you know, it's this idea that in horror, it's nothing is quite as bad. Like, if you just, you know, go up to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre house and Leatherface runs out and kills you immediately, there's nothing as delicious as Helen Shivers' run through the park, through, you know, all of that. And I know what you did last summer, because, like, when you know what's coming and you know how bad it can get, isn't that so much more terrifying? For sure. I mean, absolutely. And but yeah, like, it's kind of surprising that they don't just say, like, oh, okay, you know, he he discovers, like, a newspaper report, and, like, well, here's a flashback. What's interesting is apparently Miike wanted to end the film at the onset of the torture scene. Like, so not even show it. Like, oh, this is, like, we're ending it. He's kidnapped, and he's drugged, right. and because... But you know what's gonna happen. We know what's gonna happen. And um, one of the producers told him to be a man and see it through to, through to the end. <laughs> Good to see that chauvinism is just alive and well, both in the film and outside of the film. Yeah, and that's not my quote. I didn't make that up. That is a direct quote. Well, I mean, so some people, and this is something I can't comment on because I don't know enough about Japanese culture, but they they fixate this film at a very important historical moment. So this is at the beginning of the new Asian cinema wave. It's at the turn of the century, which is a period of time when there was a lot of tension around gendered roles in Mm -hmm. japan so some people have speculated that this film is very much a commentary on the the traditionalist approaches that japanese society has so like you know women have their roles and then men have their roles and yeah like men are not super open to women having jobs that take them out of the house that make them more assertive and less demure and these kinds of things so i do think it's interesting that the film wants to play around with these ideas but i think at the end of the day like i mean just because most of the film is playing in a relatively dramatic kind of police mode when it shifts into horror like can you imagine how unsatisfactory that would have been to have just been like well he got what coming to him like yeah you need, you do, you need to see it through. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> You're like, stop talking. No, no, I, it's, <laughs> it's, it's just, it's just going to be a gripe I have with the film. So it, right. it is what it is. It's why it's not a five star film for me. Okay. Uh, I mean, so not the only like, reason. Do you like the gore then? Do oh, you yeah, like that yeah. final sequence. No, the final sequence is fantastic. But again, like we said at the top of the episode, it's gory, but it's not like it. it it's more impactful than what it doesn't show. Yes. Like, it shows like, it shows her start to pull the wire back and forth, but it, it doesn't, like, stay on it. You see her face the whole time. I think what that's what's scary about it is her gleeful, like, oh, smiling face. It. Doing the kitty, 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 kitty. Um, oh, that's with the needles. Sorry. Um, but I actually thought the most, like, ooh, like, where I, like, had to turn away is after she has all the needles on his belly and she climbs to straddle him and mm. she like scoots up over the needles to his face. Yes. Ugh. I 
yeah, I winced real hard at that. It was rough. Like, more so than when she's putting the stuff in under his eyes. Well, and what's interesting, too, is... Okay, so yes, I had the exact same reaction. I mean, part of it is that you're you're enjoying how awful the experience is because you you get all the information up front. He's paralyzed, but he can still feel everything. So then you get, you know, what, five different acupuncture needles in the belly, mm -hmm. and then she, like, scrapes up so that she can sit yeah. on his chest, which is, like, inherently sexual and kind of amusing in a well, way. Well, um, first of all, um, the needles, too, were a um, movie invention. In the book, she just cuts off both of his feet and she does cut them both off not just one oh see i love i love the introduction that this is like a, a multi-stage approach <laughs> yes no i think the needles are great and but also and it's also like you're getting into bdsm because she's wearing like a leather apron with leather yes. gloves so it's yeah. like you know then you're and getting high heel boots yes i mean she is a dominatrix for yeah. the ages yeah which is hilarious because you're you're then contrasting that with the way that she's acting, which is so childlike, which is so it's it's almost innocent and playful, except for the fact that she's doing the most terrible things to this man. Yeah, it's really I think, yeah, when she's like saying, yeah, like, like you said, your nerves are like you're paralyzed. You're, you're you can't move, but your nerves are still alive. <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh, bitch. Which, in case you're wondering, is not a real thing, so you don't ever have to worry about being doused with this in real life. Correct. That drug was invented for the movie. Yeah. Um, but I do I do love the framing, which is what you were talking about before I deviated. Mm -hmm. um, I love, because I had forgotten the exact order or what she exactly does. Like, I always remember the foot, because the yeah. image of her sawing through that is so iconic. And like you said, the sound is just so insane. Yeah. But I'd, I'd forgotten when she scoots up, I was convinced, and this is the part where Brian had his mini panic attack, uh, I thought that she was sticking the needles in his eye. Like I did too, In actually. his eye, because the framing is such that you just see her hovering over his face and the needles going in and, you know, you're getting like wet, splishy sound effects. And of course, I think this is by design, you're meant to believe that she's poking out his eyes with these needles. But... Yeah. Then you just see, like, no, no, he's just got them, just, he's got them above and below his but eyes. I think, because, yeah, it's, like, in the spot right under them, but I think it actually probably does pierce maybe the underside of his eye. Or maybe it's, like, the needle going between, I'm, like, touching my eye right now to be like, where is it going? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but, like, this basically right between, like, the bone of your eye socket and, like, where your eyeball is. Oh, I don't know. But she, ah, make, she makes ah. a comment that says, like, it's the, it's one of the most sensitive parts of your body. Like, that and the stomach are the most I sensitive parts. I can believe it. I can 100% believe it. Um, there yeah, are certain I, places on my body where I don't ever want to sustain an injury. And I'll be honest, like, I, one of my most vivid nightmares as a child was that I would actually get my eyelids cut off. And it just, like, it fucking freaks me out. That's one of my favorite lines from Scream 4 when he tells her he's going to cut her eyelids open so she can't... Or she, I'm going to slit her eyelids open so you can't blink when I stab you in the face. Um, love that. But um, something with the framing that you were mentioning, though, which I, I kind of loved. Um, so the cinematography, a lot of the shots are like the camera's just back, like in the back corner of the room, just surveying everything. And it's mm -hmm. it's like that when you meet Aoyama and Yoshikawa at the bar. It's like that during the audition sequence. It's like yeah. that during the needle sequence. It's um, so voyeuristic, right? It is. Uh, and um, cinematographers Hideo Yamamoto, who also did Ringu 2, Each of the Killer, One Miss Call, and the American remake of The Grudge. Um, but, I yeah, I, I, I again, 
you see so much without seeing a lot. It's, yeah. it's it's a really interesting choice I think that they made, but I, I I it's also I think it's almost at a Dutch angle during the torture scene, um, where it's like you know kind of like a tilted camera. Mm, I can't recall, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I liked. I'm a, I'm a big fan of that because it it shows. It's not like a because I feel like in a normal movie you would see a lot of cuts all over the place. Um, oh yeah. Whereas this movie is like no, we're just gonna put the camera up here and just let the actors do their thing. And so it's all just playing out like in one take. I mean, let's, if we can, let's try to remember all the way back to near the start of the podcast when we did Hostel, the level of restraint in this film, in Audition, compared Mm -hmm. to the way that, you know, violence is inflicted on someone who is prone and unable to fight back, but still awake and able to feel yes it's it's a different type of narrative yes it's a different director yes it's a different nationality but there's almost an eloquence to this violence where these are mature adults it's almost like they're working out the relationship issues through terrible fucking violence yeah i I can see that i can do it there's there's almost like a love in the way that they're that they're hand well the way that she's handling him because of course he ain't doing shit to her, so. <laughs> uh well i know you said at the beginning like tarantino has mentioned this movie is like like one of his favorite movies of all time and i'm sure eli roth thinks the same thing because he's a tarantino oh, yeah. nut so you yeah, know they're the just two of them are beaten off in the i think like they're just masturbating sure. to this movie yeah, <laughs> like oh yeah yeah just imagine like on the phone like hey eli you want to come over i got audition oh my god it's a blue k oh oh 4 4k it's gonna be so pristine oh are you doing a Quentin Tarantino interpretation or an Eli Roth interpretation? I'm assuming it's Tarantino because no way Tarantino is going to go to Eli Roth's house. No, yeah. <laughs> Although in this in this sequence, do we really think that Quentin Tarantino would ever invite Eli Roth over? No, probably no. not. It'd be like, yeah, come over to my buddy's place. We're <laughs> in the garage because I don't want to give you my home address. Yeah, yeah. yeah let's. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Um, oh, dear. Okay, so what did you think of the moment when Shige arrives? Well, no, oh, that's the interesting cut, though. So she, she takes her mace, and then he sees the dad, and then she comes up behind him, and then right before she reaches him, it cuts back to the hotel room. Yeah. And we get to see them, like, enjoying. I, I like that. And I think when I was a kid, I was I, that was when I was like, oh, shit, was it all a dream? Like, I actually thought that as a kid. Um, mm-hmm. And by kid, like, you know, 16, 17. But I do like it as Aoyama's, like, you know, if only it could have been like this. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's still Mike being playful and saying, like, uh, maybe, like, are you certain that this is what's actually happening? Like, yeah. maybe this is just a really bad trip. Yeah. Which, okay. If it was, if it ended like that and it was oh like, God, oh, it's all no. a dream. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. Would you like it? <laughs> no, I would burn at this movie. I fucking hate it was all a dream. Yeah, I do too. I hate that in TV shows. I hate it's all a dream. I hate, oh, we're going to wipe the protagonist's memory so they don't remember anything that happened oh in this movie. Oh my God, no, no. Uh, looking at you, Pokemon, the first movie, I love you, but fuck off with that ending. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, speaking of like <laughs> out of the blue left turns i know that's the movie where no they go through all this shit and then in the end that the pokemon mewtwo like erases all their memories and it's like what the what was the point of the movie if they don't know 
oh, it makes me so mad. Yeah. So anyway, the journey is for the audience exclusively. Hey, I fucking hate that. That's such Fuck a that. slap in the face. But yeah, no. So this one, yeah, I'm glad I didn't do that. It does extend the runtime of this film even more than it already is. But yeah. It's fine. I mean, again, but but then you're like, well, because we're supposed to be sympathizing with Aoyama, who, for the first hour of this movie, we're like, this guy's kind of a dick. So, do you think he deserves what what was coming to him? Um, I mean, this is one of those things where are are we allowed to pass judgment on the fates of characters? And I say that not to be like, oh, don't ask me a rhetorical question. I'm going to be a bitch about it. Right. It's. Like, I don't know that anything someone could do is worthy of having your <laughs> fucking foot chopped off yeah. with piano wire. Like, not well, even an axe. It's not even fast. Okay, well, no. So then go look at your rapist in Last House on the Left or... Um, right. So, yeah. but that, that's a different story. Um, but yeah, no, for it, sure. I, I get what you're saying. Well, the I was going to say it earlier and I didn't really... I don't know if they're an equivalent, but when you were talking about whether or not we should consider... Aoyama, a, a bad guy, I flash back to the conversation that we had with Ariel during our Ginger Snaps episode, mm. where we talked about Sam presenting as this nice guy who just wants to help Bridget, oh, and he's not that bad. But, but he's like, fucking all the girls in town, using yeah. them up. Yeah. So I, I kind of feel the same way, right? Like, just... And it, it's, it makes for more interesting characters for me because he's not a good guy and he's not a bad guy. Does he deserve what happens to him? Probably not. But does he deserve some fucking comeuppance? Like, yeah. 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 I think so. I think there's a difference between those two characters, though, because I'm trying to, like, figure out the best way to describe it. Because I was going to say, well, Aoyama thinks he's a good guy. He believes he's a good guy. He just doesn't know what he's doing is, like, so fucked up. But then you can say the same thing about Sam. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Whereas like he thinks what he's doing and he doesn't see anything wrong with what he's doing. Like he, yeah. but what he's doing is fucked up. So I don't really know the difference between it. It's, it's just a matter of like, how do they come across to you? But I think it's, it's so much more clever and complicated and it leaves us as an audience more almost emotional, heavy lifting to do as a result. Because like at the end of the day, I think if you watch a film like audition and you say, well, that guy got what he had coming or like, Yep, yeah. that crazy bitch deserved to get booted down the stairs and have a broken neck. Like, I think you're actually missing the point of this film. If anything, I was actually kind of upset that she died so quickly. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's it's almost anticlimactic. Like, it, it, Although there is that great shot of her neck bone, like, protruding this from her neck. Well, I even love the, the slow motion of her just, like, falling back down the stairs. Because normally, but like, like, when people get knocked down the stairs in movies, it's typically, you know, they're rolling and hitting walls and, and yeah. going this one is like she's fucking airborne yeah it's kind of amazing uh you know what movie jacks that was uh scream four when sydney kicks ghost face down the stairs oh yeah um <laughs> uh, no yeah it's it's and then yeah we're, we end it on her corpse or yeah, maybe soon yes. to be corpse just telling like actually repeating a line from earlier in the film but yeah just telling ayama how happy she was to see him and that's that's where we leave it. Like, we don't... And, oh, I'm sorry. Then it cuts to credits with a fucking pop song. <laughs> I, we, yeah. I was like, what is going on? I was... That was very jarring. I love it. It's like, oh, are you all, like, dour and, like, you know, recovering from the crazy shock of what I just gave you? Like, here, have a little pop. 
I almost wish I could have seen it in theaters, um, which actually Draft House played it at Terra Tuesday a couple weeks ago, but I didn't want to go because I was like, well, I, gotta go watch, I have to watch it again in like a month. Right. So I'm not going to go see it in theater. I don't want to watch this twice in a month. But yeah, I, just because, a bit like in 1999 or 2000, to be like, I wonder what people thought when that just started playing. <laughs> yeah, I can tell you watching it with a room of like 21, 22 year old Canadians who like i think maybe one or two people had actually seen it including the person who programmed it Mm -hmm. i mean i think for the first part it was the film tried to live up to these expectations because everybody knew something of what would happen at the end but then when you actually get to it there's almost nothing that can prepare you for it yeah it's one thing for somebody to say oh well yeah like she you know she hacks off his foot with piano wire but it's quite another to see someone actually do it and like in the annals of film history oh it's it's one of i can't really say that i've seen a lot more like normally you see people get you know garroted like on the neck Mm -hmm. that's it yeah but you never see the wire like go through i I also i forgot that we really see that decapitation yeah i forgot all about that which i think is maybe more like showy than the foot stuff like it shows more it does um but yeah it's it's intense it's Mm-hmm. I mean, I really like this movie. I think it's I think it's aged very well. Yes. It's a Me Too movie. Uh, <laughs> fuck your mother. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, uh, again, I liked it a lot more on this watch than I did in my, my previous two watches. I would recommend reading the book, y'all. If you've seen the movie, it's, a, I mean, it's fucking 190 pages. It's a super easy read. I read it literally on a three-hour plane ride. Cool. So, yeah, it was, it was good. Yeah, so do this and then do a piercing... As a double bill. <laughs> see, I wasn't crazy about that movie piercing, so maybe I'll go read that book and see if it makes me like the movie more. Oh, yeah, and then report back. Yeah, we'll do. Okay, so I have a game. I have to say, I think we've been forgetting our games, so what's what's your game? I can keep it short and fast, but this is one for everyone to play at home because it's, uh, it's a terrible one. <laughs> I want to know if you had to lose a body part with piano wire, what are you going to go with? I've actually thought about this before because <laughs> no, I have a very low tolerance for pain, like really low. Like if I was getting tortured, I would give up information immediately and just or just be like, kill me, literally, just kill me. Okay, so your life as a spy is over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't. Like when I watch the Americans, I'm like, oh god, like oh, I, yeah. I, I can't do any of this. Like I, I would be a terrible spy. Um, I. <sighs> I'm going to say a toe. <laughs> okay. Cause Do you I'm have not... one in mind? Uh, yeah, sure. The pinky on my right foot. Although I think that fucks up your balance. So yes. maybe I should just take the whole foot. Maybe just take the whole foot and I'll wear a prosthetic. Oh, you could get like one of those fun ones that the Olympic goth like athletes have. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> well, cause anyway, what, what body parts can you give away? You have your fingers, your hands, your toes, your feet, your penis, your arms, your ears. I went with ear. Okay. Yeah. I would I would never it would get rid of my tongue. Very gross to look at, but I I'd like to think that they're so like it's mostly cartilage and not a ton of bone. So hypothetically it would come off relatively quickly and there wouldn't be like a, a lot of lasting damage. Alright. I believe that. I mean people get their ears pierced all the time, so I'm sure getting it cut off can't be much different. I'm I mean I'm sure it is. <laughs> if you've had your ear cut off, please let us know. God I mean, contextualize it though. Tell us were were you attacked yeah. by a lady after you <laughs> yeah, slept wait. with her? Don't just <laughs> don't just say yeah I lost my ear. It was not. It was fine or it was terrible. Uh, please contextualize it. Please give us that story, um, and we'll read it on the air one day. Yeah, 
I, I would say that or maybe like the top part of an index finger. I think you could live with that. I've seen people who have lost like part of a finger and they're okay. Just rewatched uh, House of Wax and that happens to Alicia Cuthbert in that movie. There you go. And she's living her best life. She's living her best movie. life. So any lasting thoughts on audition before we uh, get into what we're talking about next week? I'm with you. I, I think that the film has aged really well. And I actually appreciate it a lot more than when I first saw it. Because I think... It, the hype is that it's all about the ending, but there's actually a lot more to the film. And if you di- like, if you disregard the beginning part of the film, you're not really taking the whole thing in. Yeah, and same. And I, we've had a couple people tell us that when they listen to our episodes, they actually discover that they like movies that we discuss. That they like the movies that that we discuss more after hearing us talk about it. Because obviously, you know, if you don't understand a movie, or like, you know, you maybe don't notice things, and that's why you don't like the movie. Yeah, hopefully, maybe if you've seen this movie, and you don't like it. Maybe that our discussion is like maybe inspired a newfound appreciation for the film in you. I don't know, but that's why I read the book because uh, right. I wanted to know things. I was like, "What the fuck?" So, well, and I think you make a good point that sometimes if there's source material and you're not a huge fan of the film, maybe the book can also illuminate you. Yeah, and I'm, you go through this every week on your um your. H S K S Wait, H K H S H S podcast. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Harry Katniss Hazel and Star. Um, oh, very nice. I know, right? I listen to things. So yeah, well, okay, that's audition. Before we announce what we're covering next week, I did want to take a second to plug a podcast appearance I made this week. Uh, so I was lucky enough to join the Dead Ringers podcast, which, if you don't know, is a horror podcast that sets up double features of similar-ish horror films and discusses them. On this week's episode, I discuss Sam Raimi's Drag Me to Hell and Jacques Tourneau's 1957 film Curse of the Demon, or uh, Night of the Demon if you watch the UK cut, with Nolan McBride, Philip Yunt, and Paul Farrell. That should be available by the time this episode drops, so if you want to hear me gush over Drag Me to Hell and condemn anyone who thinks Christine Brown deserves her fate, go check that out right now. And again, that is the Dead Ringers podcast. Uh, if you want to reach us on Twitter, you can reach me at Trace Thurman. And I am at B Stole My Remote. That's the letter B. And be sure you use the hashtag HorrorQueers so we can find you. Uh, you can also email us at HorrorQueers at gmail.com or check out our Facebook page. Give us a like and we'll talk to you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it, and only then. Yes, only then, yeah. But we do want to know which part of your body would you be willing to lose. Yeah, it, we'll probably make a post about it. Because the, the things with uh, question, answers, and votes tend to get the most engagement. This is true. Um, if you have two seconds, please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating. If you have 30 seconds, please leave us a rating and a review. Uh, we actually got two new reviews this week. One of them, I don't know, but one of them, uh, Blake Mata. Thank you very much for your five-star review. Oh. I know. Uh, if you want even more content, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash horrorqueers, where you can sign up for exclusive bonus episodes. Uh, our last full-length one was on Crawl, but we will have one coming up in a few weeks on 47 Meters Down, Uncaged. Mm-hmm. And we just talked about Aquatic Horror in the most recent mini-sode. Yes. Um, we should have another one dropping this week, too, on um, our horror hot takes. If you want to hear some of our controversial yeah. hot takes, uh, yeah. you can you know pay us money and go listen to that. There's a couple bombs in there, I'm not going to lie. Things that I think could like lose us followers. <laughs> I did make Joe gasp twice, so... This is true. There's that. Um, but yeah, so uh, Joe, what are we covering next week? I think we missed the cue off the top, but uh, we are technically in a month-long block of <laughs> M. Fatale films. Yes. So we are going to continue the trend in week two, and we're going to watch 2017's Tragedy Girls. Which is a much 
more fun movie than this one. <laughs> it's true. It's more in the spirit of the Bring It On audition scene. Yes, it is. So make sure y'all seek out Tragedy Girls if you haven't seen it. Uh, you can also find my review for the film out of South by Southwest uh, on Bloody Disgusting, where I said it earned a like, a retweet, and a follow. And if you don't get what that means... Watch the film. <laughs> you'll you will. You'll get it. So I think we can cross out audition. Yes, and cross out horror queers. This episode was brought to you by the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, delivering your weekly horror podcast fix. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit bloodydisgusting.com backslash podcast network.